The following is a special sports presentation of UltimateSportsTalk.com. A swing and a drive to deep right, away back, goal! UltimateSportsTalk.com now presents <coughs> the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, an in-depth look at the Cincinnati Reds and the Cleveland Indians. For the fifth consecutive year, we examine the teams and their progress throughout the baseball season. And now, the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Well, hello everyone again to the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'm Dave Mitchell. Glad to have you along this evening on Ultimate Sports Talk as we talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds for our fifth consecutive year. Well, both teams are having a tough time as we reach into the dog days of August. The Reds have tonight off, but the Indians are playing, and as of right now, at Fenway Park, they are leading the ball game 6-1. to one. So let's talk about what's happening with both ball clubs, and to do that, we've got to go down south and bring in our resident Reds expert, <clears throat> Mark Donahue. Mark, how you doing tonight? I'm great, Dave. How you doing? I'm doing just fine. How's everything going with your health? Oh, don't worry about that. I'll, I'll survive. All right. Uh, but I did want to talk about something uh, and make amends to those who I had uh, misled. Um, I said that on this 10-game road trip that the Reds were going to go 2-8. and eight. And, of course, they went 3-7. and seven. And I don't know how I could have missed it that much, but I did not expect that they were going to win last Friday night against the Dodgers I thought they were going to get swept. Uh, so I apologize to those of you who hang on every prediction I make. Uh, people like Tom Patrick and Linda Jordan, who, by the way, I want to thank both of them for um, the cards they've sent me, get will cards and, and the like. But uh, I know they hang on my uh, predictions for the Reds, and I, I was clearly wrong this time. Both obviously have nothing better to do. Apparently. That's, that's probably true. Mark, I want to ask you a question about the Indians. Being an outsider, but being someone that, that does follow baseball, the Indians are 54-62, and 62, and they are six games behind in the wild card chase. Now, with six weeks, little little more than six weeks left to go in the regular season, do you think the Indians are still in the wild card chase? No, but I I don't. I, I think they had their chance. I remember at the All-Star break, I think they were four games back uh, with, you know, 20 or 25 more games to play. And at the time, I said they were in it. And um, I'm not sure you agreed with that, but I think at this point, it's not only just the six games back, but the schedule does not help them because not only are there fewer games left, but the teams they have to catch play each other which means that one of those teams is going to you know, get better every night they win. And even if, the, if they split, it's gonna, the, the Indians would have to almost play 800 ball or 750 ball to catch any of those teams, and that's not going to happen with that team. They had their opportunity at the All-Star break uh, to make the decision whether they are going to compete or not. And my feeling is that if a team – takes the takes the plunge, takes the leap, and goes out there and tries to win, I don't hold that against the, the, the organization. Things sometimes don't work out. What I do think is wrong is when a team basically gives up, and that's exactly what the Indians did. Now, they, they had a different situation than the Reds, but the Indians, somewhere in that organization, they made the decision around the All-Star break, guys, <clears throat> we're not going to win, so we don't want to go out and risk uh, giving up some good young talent to get people who can come in and help us maybe get a wild card. So that was their decision, and they got to live with it. Well, I, I think they are going to live with it, obviously, because you know they're six games behind, but they've got seven teams that they've got to go over. They're playing some good baseball right now. I want to get into Carlos Santana here in a little bit. But, Mark, the one person that I want to bring up for the Indians right off the bat tonight, pardon the pun, you always ask me about this guy. You always want to know how he's doing. And I'm going to tell you right now, Francisco Lindor is one of the reasons that the Indians are rallying right now. He has been hotter than a firecracker over the last three weeks. And since he's come up, he's batting 292 on the season, Mark. And right now, only playing two and a half months of this season, 
he is tied for the top spot for hits among all rookies in Major League Baseball with 40 and playing excellent defense. Lindor has really been, as far as I'm concerned, more than advertised from the bat. From the field, I expected what we're getting from him. But at the plate, Lindor is doing an outstanding job there. You know, Dave, what's disappointing is that I don't understand why you weren't pushing Lindor more at the beginning of the year. Uh, you you said leave him down there, have another year in the minors, and I, you know, I tried to tell you I thought this guy was pretty good. Well, yeah, you did. I'll, I'll give you credit. You know, every once in a while, <laughs> I've got to give you credit where credit is due. Unfortunately, this is not one of those times. <laughs> Mark the Reds. 51 and 65. They're in fourth place. 23 and a half games behind St. Louis. They're 16 games behind in the wild card chase. For all intents and purposes, you know the the season is over. It has been over for a long time, and the Reds now are starting to go to their youth. They're starting to go to their young pitching, and they went with John Lamb, one of the pitchers that they got for Johnny Cueto at the trade deadline from Kansas City, the left-hander. And you and I discussed him the night that Cueto was traded to the Royals and how Lamb is a big, strong, left-handed pitcher. Did you get a chance to see him pitch on Friday? And if so, what were your thoughts? I did, and um, I, I wish I had more enthusiasm about what I saw. Uh, he is still coming back and recovering, they say, from Tommy John surgery. So uh, it, it may be another six months before he's back physically at 100%. But what I, what I saw... First of all, a guy reminds me of Jerry Rice. Remember the Dodger pitcher, left-hander? Yes. Um, and he does not have a fastball. I think I think he topped out around 92, but it didn't have a lot of late life on it. Uh, he's got a good breaking ball. But what happened with the Dodgers is they figured that out, and they were sitting on his curveball at the end. And, uh, he, you know, it, it, major league players don't let you get away with that stuff. And – if this is as good as John Lamb is going to be in terms of his velocity and his control of pitches in the zone, not not that he's got bad control, but you've got to control your pitches in the zone. And I didn't see much that gave me a lot of encouragement for that. So hopefully this was just maybe some first-time jitters you cannot judge. He could have pitched a no-hitter the other night, would not have meant he's going to be a great pitcher. But what I saw, you know, I was kind of lukewarm about not the result. I don't want to get over zealous about the result. He gave up five runs, I think, in five innings. But it's the stuff that I saw and the velocity uh, that concerned me. Well, you know, you and I have discussed this over the past few years, that any time a pitcher undergoes Tommy John surgery, it normally takes about not only the year for them to recuperate, but another year after that for them to actually get their arm strength back. That's right, and that's why th this idea of the Reds depending on Homer Bailey next year is ridiculous. Uh, he's not even going to be ready to start throwing again and probably until May. And then it's going to take at least a month or two uh, of rehab and rehab starts and bullpen sessions and long toss and all the stuff you have to go through. So you said that 2015 is a loss. Well, so is 2016. And unless the Reds go out and do something uh, to, um, to to shore up this this starting rotation, you can't go into next year with five rookie pitchers. It's just not going to work. And that's what they have right now. But Mark, Walt Jockety said just about a month ago that Mike Leake was going to be the ace of the staff next year. Or I'm sorry, Homer Bailey was going to be the ace of the staff next year. I know, and I, for for a moment there, I was wrapped up in the in the glow of genius. But uh, the, the fact is, everybody knows that Homer Bailey is not going to be ready for next year, and maybe until July at the earliest. And if you go into the season with David Holmberg in your rotation, or some of these other guys that, frankly, you know, they, it, you remember the, the Kitty Corps, the, the pitching staff of the Baltimore Orioles, I think back in the 50s? I think they had four rookie pitchers, Chuck Estrada and Billy O'Dell and Billy Pierce and uh, some of these other guys. Jack Fisher, I think, was on that staff. Uh, those guys ended up to be very good pitchers. But the, the Reds, the young guys they got, I would rate Iglesias right now as the top young pitcher that they have. And uh, 
DiScalvo, I'm sorry, I'm mispronouncing his name now, um, Anthony DiScalfini, uh, he pitched very well yesterday, by the way, and he's pitched well. I think he's 7-8. and eight. He's got an ERA in, in the mid-threes. Uh, I, I think he is maybe next to Iglesias, has the highest ceiling. But after that, I haven't seen anything that, you know, you stand up and say, wow, can't wait till that guy gets a year older. He's going to be tough. I haven't seen that yet. And there's nobody on that staff that is blowing you away. And um, so if Stevenson does not prove to be the hero everyone says he was going to be, uh, it's not only be 2015, David, 2016 and 17 could be long, long years. Mark, I've really got to laugh at the latest injury that I have heard a Major League Baseball player have. Chris Johnson, the guy that the Indians just acquired for Nick Swisher and Michael Bourne, is out of the lineup now for at least the next couple of days, probably up close to a week, because he just received a spider bite to his index finger, and he can't grip a baseball or a bat. Is there no end to meaningless injuries that Major League players go under? Well, unless the <laughs> unless the bite was stripping the size of Godzilla, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I've had some spider bites, and maybe it could impact your throwing, but I don't know why it would impact your hitting. Put a hitting glove on. But, again, these are the kinds of things, and I hate to say back in the day, but because of the contracts, uh, players just don't have to worry about losing a spot. They have big million, multi-million dollar contracts. And if they don't play a couple days, they don't care. In fact, they probably like the idea taking a couple days off. But uh, it's a different atmosphere, a different feel out there. And, and these guys are entertainers. Uh, they're certainly great athletes. But because of the contracts, because of the way things are structured, there's just not that urgency to get on the field. You know, there's an article on the Indians' website today, Mark, that the way the Indians are hitting the baseball right now, they are not giving their pitching staff any room for error. Well, news alert, that's been going on all season. The, the Indians' website is just now picking that up. I mean, for example, in Minnesota, they lost two out of three games. They scored five runs on Friday night, and Corey Kluber cruised to a one-hitter and won that game. And then the next two games, the Indians scored one run on Saturday, one run on Sunday, and lost the games. And yesterday, they lost 2-1. to one. You just can't win games, Mark, scoring one run. You've got to do more than that. Tonight, they've gotten some two-out hits. They're leading Boston 6-1, to one, as I said, in the sixth inning. <coughs> but they're just not able to get timely hitting, and they make too many mistakes on the bases. And, it, you know, Mark, over our years doing this show, five years, there seems to be always one person that I spend a season hammering on. Two years it was Manny Acta. One year it was Asdrubal Cabrera. This year the player that I am hammering on is Carlos Santana. And I have just about run the gamut with this guy. I just think that he is killing this team, batting in the cleanup position because he's killing run-scoring chances. Here's why I'm saying this. With a tie score, his batting average is 211 with runners in scoring position with seven RBIs in a tie ball game. With runners in scoring position overall, he's batting 222. But with the team in the lead, he is hitting 315. And tonight he hit a home run with the Indians up 5-1, to one, a solo shot to put them up 6-1. to one. That is his modus operandi. And just to show you, Mark, how much lack of respect Santana has as a hitter in the middle of that Indians lineup, he has only been intentionally walked five times this year. Well, first of all, let's let's back up a second. Uh, what's uh, Cabrera doing this year? Nothing. He's playing shortstop for Washington, and look where they're going. Well, I know, but I thought his stats the second half of the season were pretty good. Uh, I know he had a game-winning RBI the other night. Um, and I, I wonder, on these statistics, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody, uh, 
when you say that he doesn't have a good batting average with the team behind, well, that may be because that they're behind because they're facing good pitching. But is there any less value to a guy driving in a run if the team, if the Indians are ahead two to one or three to two or five to four or five to one? Aren't add-on runs as important as runs when you're behind? Now that I didn't look up, but I could tell you just from memory that Santana normally hits when the Indians are three, four, five runs up, like he did tonight. He'll hit a home run, and he won't hit another home run for two weeks. Okay, let me throw this back at you. They're okay. they're, they're six to one, right? They're ahead six to one. Yes. What was the score when he hit the home run? Five to one. Okay, that means that the pitcher that they were facing had already either that pitcher or uh, the starting pitcher had given up five runs, which means he's imminently hittable tonight. Or they brought in somebody from the bullpen. No, he hit the, it was off the starter, Matt okay. Barnes. Okay, so Matt Barnes, number one, is not doesn't have a great record, and he had already given up five runs. So it's not inconceivable that he's not as tough a pitcher as he you would face in, in other games. So I would agree. So I, I'm just I'm always leery at looking at anecdotal statistics because sometimes there's an explanation as to why that might occur. And I will your Santana. Uh, I'm not going to say tirade because you didn't tirade, but your, your approach on Santana is very similar to what I have for Jay Bruce. And what's Santana hitting these days? He's batting 240. Guess what Jay Bruce is hitting? About 240. <laughs> okay, and Bruce has got 18 home runs. And Santana's got 13. Okay. Jay Bruce strikes out more than anybody on the Reds. He's, and Santana walks more than anybody on the Indians. Okay. So Bruce and Santana, to me, are the same type of player. I think Jay Bruce is probably better defensively. He, you know, he's probably a better runner, better athlete. Absolutely. You know, when when Santana first came up, was it four or five years ago, I saw him and I said, holy cow, switch hitting catcher, line drives, great power, great behind the plate. I mean, at least he could throw. He wasn't very good behind the plate, but he could throw. And I'm thinking, this guy, he's going to be the next big thing. That's precisely what we all said about Jay Bruce. And, yes. and the question is, what happens to these kinds of players who come in with such high expectations, like Jay Bruce and Santana did, what did the scouts and the other teams figure out that was not figured out when these kids first came up? You know, that's a very interesting question, Mark, and both of them have the same thing in common. You mentioned that you know you saw both players, both looked good, both looked like they had a very good future in front of them. And the teams thought the same thing. And what did each team do? They signed each one of these players to a long-term contract. Yes, at a team-friendly deal, but a long-term contract. Could it be that these players both have the same psyche, same mental outlook that, okay, hey, I've got it made now. I've got my long-term deal. Now I can sit back and rest on my laurels and not work the craft like they did before. I, I think it's a very valid argument, and what I, what really disturbs me about Jay Bruce, and I met Jay Bruce one time. I said hi to him uh, at a game near when I was near the dugout. I, I don't know Jay Bruce. I don't even know anybody who does know him. But he seems like an intelligent, likable young man, lots of talent. But I see him play now, and it is like he's going through the motions. He strikes out, and it, it's like he doesn't even care. And not only does he strike out, Dave, he misses pitches by 18 inches. He, he, he swings at pitches that if you, if Jay Bruce had gone to a major league tryout camp and he swung at pitches like he, he does now, they wouldn't sign him. And he's not getting better. He's going to hit probably 230 this year, and he will clearly, before the end of the season, he'll have a week or 10 days where he hits 400 and hits five home runs and you know, drives in a bunch of runs, and everybody says, oh, boy, this is this is the new Jay Bruce. Well, it's not going to be the new Jay Bruce. You know, he is what he is, and either you accept, as the Indians must accept, you accept these players, they're going to hit 240, 245, they're struck out a couple hundred times, 
And I, I would bet that Santana is probably has a higher on base percentage than than does Jay Bruce. Uh, with the amount of walks that Santana has, yes, I would agree with that. But both of them have the same approach, Mark, as far as practically being. I know you've mentioned this. I'm mentioning this now about Santana. They're practically uncoachable when it comes to hitting. They don't change their swing. When they do adjust their swing somewhat, they come out, they hit a home run or have a good day at the plate, and they go right back to what they were doing before. Over the four-game series of the Dodgers, I, I, I frankly, I didn't see all the game yesterday because I knew they were going to lose it, and I, I think I turned it off in the seventh inning. Jay Bruce, he had, I think, like 14 or 15 at-bats in the Dodgers series. He tried to pull nine or ten pitches on the outside corner. He tried to pull it. And so all he did was ground, you know, rolls over the top, grounds out to the shift. He could have had five or six hits just laying the ball down the third baseline. Make them change, and he doesn't do it. That To me, that is that is ignorance on the part of either the team that says, well, don't worry about it, Jay, just go up there and pull the ball, or the hitter. I mean, anybody could choke up and just tap the ball down the third baseline and have base hit. Yeah, and, and I agree with you on that. Yeah, and, and you know, I that's what an old-time ball player would have done. Today's ball players won't do that. Today's ball players want to hit on Sports Center. They want to get a highlight on there, and the only way they can do it is by beating the ball through that shift somehow. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense, and but I, but I don't know who to blame. If if I'm managing the Reds and Jay Bruce pulls. Nine to ten pitches in that Dodger series, I would say to him, Jay, either go to left field or sit. And, but they won't do that. Either they can't do it, they're afraid to do it. I, I don't understand it. But you have to have enough brains. And Brian Price is a smart guy. He knows if Jay Bruce just shortened his swing up, went to left field, he would force the opposition to get out of the shift, which would open up the right side where he could then get some base hits on the right side. But it, 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 I don't know who's making those decisions. Is it the, the coaching staff? Is it the player? Is it the GM? Jay, just go up there, hit 20 home runs this year, and strike out 200 times. That's what we want. It, it makes no sense to me. Well, what is the situation with Billy Hamilton right now? Because Billy Hamilton's not hitting the baseball either. Well, he did get four hits the other night, and, of course, that starts the patter that, oh, boy, he's found his stroke, and things are going to change now. Well, after that, he went one for 12. And, and the reason is he, he pops out to the outfield several times. And the worst thing that could have happened Friday night was he hit a home run right-handed. So to me, the, the, the question about B Billy Hamilton is not does he have valuable talent. He does. I mean, he's, he's going to steal 65 bases this year even hitting 225 and having an on-base percentage of around 260. That's a lot of stolen bases. That's a lot of doubles. My point is, can't you be a bit more creative on how you use that talent? As I've said now for two or three weeks, why not bring him in as a late-inning replacement to pinch run when you need a stolen base? He'll steal you 100 bases that way. He'll get on more that way than he would by his own initiative trying to hit four times during a game. He's a great defensive player, putting him in defense, you know, starting him maybe in the sixth inning, do double switches, whatever it is to maximize that talent. But him going up there and hitting 220, he'll probably hit 215, 220 this year, is not, <laughs> it's not a viable alternative in center field for this team. Well, we have to be careful what we say about Billy Hamilton. Because, let me let me get into a little story here about what happened to our producer, Greg Mitchell, over the last week. Remember, last week, you and I discussed the fact that Marty Brenneman on the Reds broadcast made the comment that the Reds cannot go into next season with a center fielder that gets on base 27% of the time. You've made the comments throughout the year, just like you have tonight, that Billy Hamilton has got to learn how to hit the baseball. He's got to get get on base more than what he is. Everybody seems to agree with that. But if you mention that on Twitter, Mark, you get blocked. Greg made the comment the other night that Billy Hamilton, the Reds media department, put out a tweet 
last week that Billy Hamilton made a great catch in center field. And Greg replied to the tweet, that's great, but would somebody teach this guy how to hit the baseball? And immediately the Reds media department blocked him. They 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 banned him from from sending any more tweets to, through the Reds media department. Now, is the Reds media department that upset about bad comments about their players, Mark? That they've got to ban the people that do this? Apparently, but the the fact is, you can't hide the morning paper, and people, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, they see the statistics. And what bothers me about most of the Reds broadcasters is they're afraid to say stuff like Marty said. Marty can be a pain in the ass. I'm the first to admit that. But Marty's not afraid to come up with the truth. And sometimes he's wrong and sometimes he's right. But I think in this case, he's absolutely right. You, if you look at the top 10 center fielders in the National League, they're averaging around 272, 275. They're averaging 10 to 14 home runs, and they're going to average probably 80, 85 RBIs. Those are the top 10. But even the top 20 are 20 to 30 points higher than Billy Hamilton on on-base percentage, batting average, OPS, and slugging. So you, you are operating your offense with a guy who is in the bottom two or three offensively. The only thing he does for you offensively is he steals bases which is a great thing, but if you never get on base, how valuable is that? The team is, what, 12 games under 500? How many times can you steal when you're behind? So he, he's not bringing a lot of value. Now, on the defensive end, the guy is golden. I mean, this guy should win a gold love, and there's there's no doubting that. But this, this is a real conundrum that the Reds uh, – what I heard, the rumor I heard about Jay Bruce was that – Phil Castellini was the one who pulled the plug on a deal that would have sent Jay Bruce to the Mets for Zach Wheeler. And Zach Wheeler could be a stud. Wow. Yeah, could be a stud. And that was a deal. And the, and the Mets have a great pitching staff, and Wheeler got hurt. Is not, He may be back in the rotation now, but he wasn't uh, earlier in the year. But that would have been a great deal for the Reds. And maybe they'll still make it. I don't know. But uh, they could do a waiver deal. But um, – at any rate, Jay, Jay Bruce, I love the guy, and I loved his power. The first couple of years he came up, I just, I said, this is the next guy, you know, this is it. And he's been such a disappointment. And I, I don't know what the answer is. I'm not a hitting coach. But when a guy swings at pitches like he does and strikes out as often as he does, there's a fundamental problem in this guy's approach at the plate. Well, it was the same thing that you talked about two years ago with Drew Stubbs, and where's Drew Stubbs now? Yeah, it's it's the same kind of approach. Drew Stubbs didn't have the overall talent that, that Jay Bruce had in terms of power. I mean, he had some power. But he was he made some comment, I think, the year before he was traded, when somebody said, why don't you hit the ball into the ground more with your speed? And he says, well, I'm not going to go up there and be a Judy. Now, for those of you who don't know what that means, a punch and Judy hitter is a guy who, you know, he goes to the opposite, like Ichiro. Ichiro is considered a, Ju a Judy. Ichiro has over 3,000 hits and 4,000 hits if you count what he did in Japan. The dude can hit. And he goes the opposite way. He gives what the, the, the pitcher gives him. But the players like Drew Stubbs, that's why he's sitting on the bench in Colorado because he still hasn't made adjustments. You know, Ichiro, it's funny how you bring that up. He's got the girls' softball approach to hitting. He gets a running start in the batter's box and slaps it. Yeah, and he can. And if they come inside on him, he can still pull it. Mm -hmm. he, he's he's a just a fantastic hitter. I wish the Reds would have signed him instead of uh, Marlon Byrd, because I think he could have really helped this team this year. And he, he cost me more than Byrd did, maybe maybe even less. And apparently, he's coming back next year with uh, with Miami. They're gonna they're gonna re-sign him. So. He, well, I guess the question is, Mark, why is the owner getting involved in things like this? I, I understand why he is, but, you know, it's just, that that's just the type of thing that anytime an owner sticks his nose into personnel moves, you know that the team is no good, and they're not going to win. 
Well, the reason you, your question is not rhetorical. Uh, there's an answer to it uh, because he's got a billion dollars and he owns the team and he, he does what he damn well pleases. That's his right to do that. Uh, on the other hand, you're also accurate when that happens, like when Ted Turner got involved with deals with the Braves and, and George Steinbrenner with the Yankees, nothing good comes of that. <laughs> and if, if that rumor is true, that the Reds could have gotten Zach Wheeler for Jay Bruce and that deal was nixed by the ownership, that, that's, that's just ridiculous. They should have gotten Wheeler. And maybe they can still get him, I don't know. But uh, that's the kind of deal that you have to rely on your baseball people on what is the best talent you can get. And I'll tell you, the, the interesting thing that's happening with the Reds this year, before the year is over, the Reds have a chance to have the third or even the second worst record in baseball. I think Milwaukee is going to pass the Reds and end up in fifth place. And the Phillies, uh, I think, have the worst record in baseball. Uh, I forget who the other team is that's fighting the Reds for the, the for the worst record. But the Reds could have the first, second, or third draft pick. And who do you want making that decision? That, that's, a, that's a scary thought. Well, certainly not Walt Jockety. I mean, you and I agreed last week that we both think Dave Dombrowski should be the Reds' new GM and president. Yeah, and I, I think that has to have there has to be discussions like that. And I, I would bet that giving, given Walt Jockety's relationship with Bob Castellini, I don't think Bob would, would fire Jockety. I think what could happen is Jockety could resign. <clears throat> and the sooner well, I think he'll be given that opportunity. Yeah, and, and but it may be the only thing that, that, that would make him go away. Um, at the same time, if you have a chance to get Dombrowski, uh, man, you know that that's something you have to go for. And I hope the Reds move on that, because clearly what's happening with this organization, unfortunately, is not what everybody expected. Certainly them. But but you know, where does it stop? Does does it go up to the ownership? Are the decisions made at the baseball management level? where Jockety has put together a scouting group that is not effective. Uh, where is the problem? Because there's clearly a problem. They, they have misjudged talent. It's not economic. You can blame, you can blame injuries, but look at the Cardinals. <laughs> look what they've lost. And they're still 23 and a half games ahead of the Reds. Well, they've virtually lost an all-star team. Yeah, they have. I mean, and there's no excuse for it's not the money. It's the decisions at the baseball management level, whether it's on the field and in the front office and the scouting departments. I don't know. I don't I don't know these guys and their decisions, who makes the decisions uh, as clearly an insider would. But when you have it was interesting the other night. On the Reds broadcast, remember Matt Latos last after he was traded, he blasted the Reds uh, for the closer sleeping until the seventh inning, guys playing video games during a game, uh, taking naps, not paying attention, acting like they've been in the one-year players have been in the baseball major league baseball for ten years, and he really blasted them. Well, the other night on the broadcast, uh, that that interview came up when Matt Leto said all those things about the Reds and Tom Karma. Yeah. And Tom Brenneman said, well, yeah, but he's, he was disgruntled and all that stuff. But uh, Chris Welsh, I, I have to give him credit. He said, yeah, that may be true, but what he said might also be true. That's true. You, you cannot, you cannot discount disgruntled players thoughts. That's right. And, yeah, he may just be a disgruntled player, but what, what did he have to be a disgruntled about? He was going back to Miami, his hometown. He got a great big contract. He, you know, life is good. He was just saying what apparently Chris Welsh said indirectly. Uh, he made some oblique comment. I, I think he said something like, well, you know, some of those things could be true. And Tom Brenneman didn't say a word. You know, he's keeping the company line. So I was proud of Chris for, for making that comment. But clearly something is amiss with the organization when you're 23 and a half games behind and it's still the middle of August. There's, there's something wrong. 
So your, your point about Dombrowski, I, I think that's a great way to approach this. Start at, with a new, uh, a new direction, new leadership, new enthusiasm, but it, it's got to start there. Well, and Dombrowski has proven that he can do it with another team. He did the same thing with Detroit, came into a team that was barren in the minor leagues and built the team up into a championship contender. He took them to the World Series twice. You know, I was surprised this past week when Larry Lucchino stepped down as the president of the Red Sox that they went out and hired Jerry DePoto, who recently quit with the Angels, as their acting president. I thought for sure that Boston would go after Dombrowski, but they didn't. Well, I think it's tough to bring in a GM uh, as a full-time guy uh, during you know, the middle of the year. And in Dombrowski's case, I, he's a smart guy. He knows his value. And uh, his contract is going to be running out, I think, this year in Detroit. And he may want to test the waters. I mean, he, he may be a guy. You know, if the Dodgers don't win this year with the money they've invested, you could look for a new GM out there. Uh, you could look for a new GM in Philadelphia. Uh, I think the, the Mets, Yankees are, are solid right now. But what about Miami and San Diego? I mean, those teams are supposed to win. Well, the two teams that are so prominent to be after Dombrowski are Toronto and California. And I always want to call them California, but the Los Angeles Angels. Well, yeah, but I think, I think Toronto is going to win the East. And any team that wins is not going to change GMs. Uh, well, he's already quit. Yeah, I know, but they're not going to – I don't think they're going to go after Dombrowski or – maybe they will. But, you know, Toronto is probably playing – I mean, I forget what happened yesterday on that third game with the Yankees. I know they lost. They got beat. They got beat. So they got swept by the Yankees? No, they, they won one out of the three games. No, I think they lost the first two. No, they, they split the first two. Oh, did they? Okay, I thought they yeah, were. they split the first two and then lost the last one. Okay, not sure about that, but I'll, I'll, I'll believe you. I thought, they, I thought they lost the first two and then won the third game, but nevertheless, uh, I, I think I think they're better than the Yankees, and I think they're going to win it. Uh, but you know, you bring up California. I mean, that team has underperformed now for how many years with a huge payroll? But but look at San Diego. I mean, the money they spent, the deals they did, and it ain't worked. So so where do you? Where do you point the finger? And, and the Reds haven't won now. This will be the third year they have not won. And they're not going to win next year. And who knows what's going to happen the year after that. But when do you pull the plug? Oh, I, I think you've got to – I think it will probably be the last week of the season. He'll step down. But by then, you know, front, it, it's all over anyway as it is now. So why why make the change now? You know, we, we both thought that they were going to make the change at the All-Star break. There was a lot of rumors flying around that Jockety was gone at the All-Star break. Well, one reason to make the move now is that you'd be free then to talk to the Dombrowskis of the world. And not that you couldn't, you know, if you didn't fire him first. But that's, you know, that's not considered the right thing to do. You have a, you know, you have a GM and now you're out talking to somebody else. And in many cases, GMs... Potential GMs won't even talk to a team if they already have somebody. They'll they'll talk to a guy a team that has fired their GM. But there's there's nothing happening with with the Reds that is positive enough that you would want to keep this this team intact. Now with the Indians, you know they still have. You ask me, can they win it? Math math says no. But they're still within shouting distance. You know what I mean? I mean, they could still have some meaningful games in September that would, you know, capture the the mood of the fans. That's not going to be happening in Cincinnati this year. I mean, the Reds could lose 100 games this year. Right. And I'm not sure even the fans believe that the Indians are in it, even if they were just a couple of games out of the wild card. Mark, before we get into the TV situation, for Major League Baseball here. I wanted to bring something up to you about Detroit Brad, uh, manager Brad Osmus. He was completely dominated. The Tigers were completely dominated by the Royals on Friday night and Johnny Cueto. And Osmus, after the game, openly questioned the legality of Cueto's delivery to the plate. Osmus said to the media, really the way the rule reads, 
you're not supposed to even alter your motion. That's the way the rule reads, and they don't enforce it. We all know Cueto has the quick pitch. We all know he turns his back on home plate. Sometimes he does it, sometimes he doesn't. He does alter his windup. I've never even seen an umpire call anything on a pitcher changing his windup. Have you? I never have, and off the top of my head, I can think of a half a dozen pitchers, starting with Satchel Page and even Juan Marichal, uh, other guys who had a, Warren Spahn had a, you know really weird windups. So where do you Louis Tion? Louis Tion, yeah, he turned his back just like Cueto. You know where do you draw the line? It's such a subjective measure, and the rule also states though you can do anything you want as long as your foot doesn't leave the rubber. I mean, if you could theoretically stand on your on your shoulder or your arm, and but your foot's on the rubber, that's okay. You can do that. Uh, so there, there's, I'm not aware of any pitcher that's ever been. Think about the Ephus pitch. You know, oh, yes. with Bill Lee. I mean, isn't that a deceptive pitch when you're throwing it 14 feet in the air? Uh, so I think that's not going to go anywhere, and uh, they're going to not make Quaida. Quaida's been in the league now for, what, eight years? They're not going to make him change at this point. Well, the, you know, the wind-up doesn't bother me so much, Mark, but I've seen more and more uh, problems with the stretch, pitchers coming to the set position. I mean, I've seen, there used to be a lot of discussion about Louis Tiot's set, set position. You remember that. Where he'd constantly come to the bouncing up and down all the way from his from the numbers down to his belt. And there was a lot of talk about was that a balk? What was that? But I've seen pitchers anymore, Mark, that actually come to the set position not only once, but twice or three times out of the set position. They'll they'll bring the ball into their glove, they'll stop, then they'll bring it up, they'll stop, they'll bring it back down to the belt, they'll stop, and then they'll throw the ball. But nothing's ever called on that either. I think the, the rule states indirectly or even directly that it has to be a repeatable type windup. You can do all the things you said if you do it every time. And I think that's that's how they, they skip by it. But there are so many um, nuances to some of these rules. The, th- the rule I think ought to be changed, absolutely changed, is the, the, the swinging strike. Or, or the, the the guy tries to stop his swing, uh, you know. Unless it is a a swing that is a demonstrable attempt to hit the ball, I think you got to do do away with that. Some of these things are ridiculous. The batter just moves the bat off his shoulder, and the damn up calls a strike on it. It's it's insane, and I, I see why these guys get irate because they they're not making a pass at the ball. They they start a swing and they and they hold up. It doesn't even cross the plane of the of, of the strike zone, and but it, it's not a an aggressive move toward the ball, and it, it's incredible. I bet there are twenty five to thirty of those strikes called at any given time during a game, and it, it just it's very frustrating to me as a hitter. Uh, when that would occur, I mean, I would basically move my bat and they call a strike. What? I didn't. I didn't try to swing. <laughs> well, I saw a good one yesterday, and I'm I'm really confused as to why this isn't a replayable event. Almonte for the Indians went to bunt the ball, bunted it, foul, and the umpire said that the ball hit him outside of the batter's box and called batter interference and called El Monte out. Well, looking at the replay, the ball never hit him. First of all, there was some discussion as to whether he was even out of the batter's box, but secondly, the ball never hit him. You could clearly see that it didn't. Now, I could understand from the home plate umpire where he might think that it did, but they said that that is not a reviewable incident, and I don't understand why it wouldn't be. Yeah, I, I don't either. I mean, some of these things are not reviewable. Uh, like the uh, the play around second base, you know, in, in the neighborhood play, they say that's not reviewable, and, and some others aren't either. Uh, I, I think eventually all these plays are going to be reviewable. And uh, I think baseball has done the right thing of, number one, getting it right, and so it adds two or three minutes to a game or four minutes or five minutes. I'd rather have that happen than and, and not get the plays right. No, 
I agree with you on that. Mark, Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred announced today that next year, and I love this, there are going to be no blackouts inside market areas, which means that with the Major League Baseball package, if you're in Cleveland, Detroit, Cincinnati, whatever, you're going to be able to buy that package and see your home team play. Now, that only has to do, believe it or not, with the teams that are affiliated with Fox Sports. For example, the Indians are with Fox Sports Ohio, which is also Sports Time Ohio. They will be involved in this. Fox Sports Ohio also has the Reds. They will be involved with this. And now, as we found out today, you wanted to talk about this, St. Louis, the Cardinals, just signed a new deal with Fox Sports. Tell us about that. Well, it's a 15-year TV contract for a $1 billion, that's with a B, $1 billion in income over 15 years. So it's not an insignificant amount of money for a team that already has the best team in baseball, arguably. And now they're going to have the money to go out there and maintain that edge. And it, it's pretty interesting that uh, when you look at the, the size of St. Louis and the size of the city of Cincinnati, they're very comparable in size. And why is it that they draw so much better? Well, it's because they win. And the Reds are only averaging, I think they said 58,000 people watch the Reds game a night and about 110,000 watch a Cardinal game a night. And, of course, there's even more people listening on radio and all that, but uh, that is a huge difference, not just in numbers of people watching the, the team, but in revenue out of advertising. And that's where these teams do so well, like the Cardinals, like the Yankees, like the Dodgers. Dodgers have a $3.8 billion TV contract. $3.8 billion. That's over 20 years. That, that, that's a lot of money, Dave. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of money. That's probably bigger than the Reds' operating budget uh, total. So how how is it possible that a team like the Reds can compete over the long term, over the next 10 to 20 years, with those kinds of disparities in revenue? I, I, I wouldn't be smart enough to figure that out. I don't know who is. I don't care who your, your general manager is. And that's why you may not have a guy like Dombrowski who says, well, yeah, I love the Reds, I love the city, players look pretty good, but eh, I'm not going to be able to compete with the Dodgers, no matter how good I am. You know, the sad thing is, Mark, is that of all the major sports, baseball could use a salary cap probably more than any of them, and the, they, never will, they probably will never have one. That would be my guess. The union will never allow a salary cap. Yeah, and I, I don't blame them necessarily, but well, I don't either. The, the problem is that these the, the the different the vagaries between and the differences between the markets that these teams are in. Forget the salary cap; it's the TV revenue, the radio revenue, the advertising revenue that can come into these teams. And don't forget the Cardinals with this deal that they just signed for a billion dollars. They also got thirty percent ownership of the cable company. Because that money does not go under the salary cap. So they say, okay, we'll give you equity in our company. They, they probably could have gotten another three or $400 million uh, in cash, but that would have gone against the salary cap. So it's, it's, it's amazing what these teams do with the revenue they have. And it's remarkable when a team like the Reds can even remotely compete Money-wise, how are they going to compete against the Cubs with a $2.5 billion TV contract? You, yeah, you just can't. I mean, that's the same thing with the Yes Network in New York. That's why a lot of comp a, a lot of cable companies out there, Mark, a lot of the uh, satellite companies, I know Dish Network won't touch the Yes Network because the Yankees own it, but they charge an arm and a leg per subscriber, and that's why a lot of cable companies and and satellite companies won't put them into their packages. Well, that's you know that's why they're the Yankees, and, and you have that kind of market. You can do what you want, unfortunately. But it's 
You're right. You know, save a salary cap. I think what you're going to have to have eventually <coughs> is a a breakout of the teams that are considered major market teams. They would go into one division, like the Dodgers, the Yankees, the Cubs, the White Sox, uh, the Angels, and then they would compete against each other rather than competing against teams like the Reds and the Brewers and the Indians and Pittsburgh, who are completely different teams because of the money. So I, I think that's the only explanation that baseball can come up with or, or solution to this problem, absent a salary cap. Okay, big boys, you want to have a, you know, a budget of $400 million. That's pretty much what the Dodgers have, 250 to 350 something like that. Okay, then you just play against the Yankees and the Angels and the Cubs and the White Sox. That's your division because you're all going to be spending the same kind of money. And then let the Reds compete against, you know, the, the, the other lesser sized teams. You know, maybe the, the Reds and the Indians in the same division um, with Pittsburgh. I mean, I can see something like that happening. But then how do you explain the Kansas City Royals, the Pittsburgh Pirates uh, being at, uh, close, if not on top of their division? I can explain that very easily. They, they were so bad for so long. Decades they were bad. Twenty over twenty years they were horrible. What happened was they because of that they got great draft picks over an extended period of time. Top ten draft picks over a dozen years. So if you can't make it work after that, uh, you know you're just stupid. But in, in the case of both the the Indian the, the Pirates and Kansas City, number one they haven't won anything yet. They won their divisions. They haven't won a World Series. And if they don't win with this talent they have now, like the Reds, they're not going to be able to maintain that talent base. McCutcheon's coming up as a free agent. You think the Pirates are going to be able to afford him? No. The answer is no. No. They no. won't. And the, no. The, Unless he gives them a big hometown discount. Well, he might, but at some point he's going to say, yeah, but, oh, okay, I can sign with the Yankees and make – Twice the money or three times the money. Look at look at the Royals. They have five or six guys coming up in the next two years for arbitration. They're not going to be able to keep all those guys. And then it's going to be that cycle down again. They're going to lose, just like the Reds. The Reds cycled up. They won two or three divisions. Didn't win the World Series, as everybody said they were going to. And now they're cycling down. The question is, how far is down? How many years is down? Because they can't compete financially What's going to happen with that team over the next four or five years? And then you've got teams that are used perpetually in mediocrity. You know, for example, right now, the Atlanta Braves are pretty much in mediocrity. The Cleveland Indians are pretty much in mediocrity. You've got the Milwaukee Brewers that are pretty much in mediocrity. Arizona, same thing. Look out west. You've got Seattle. Good year one year, bad year the next. They're they're perpetually in mediocrity, so they never get better. They never get worse. Well, that's that's the point. And unless baseball does something creative, you're not going to have teams at the, at the end of the season that are going to have enough stuff to compete with a team like the Dodgers. I, I think in the next two weeks you're going to see a lot of trades. Uh, the, these teams that are that they're floating around. The Dodgers will have what a three-game lead, something like that, over San Francisco. Uh, you know, they're going to they're going to do what it takes. <laughs> you know, money is not an object. They're going to go do what it takes to win. And there are teams that just can't do that. So the Dodgers. You asked me last week, what did I think the best teams in baseball were? And I said the Dodgers. On paper, I think they have more talent than just about anybody. I mean, that starting rotation sick. But I'll bet you they go out there and add another starting pitcher to that rotation. Because they can. And Kansas City, great team. Toronto, great team right now. The Yankees, okay team. They don't have the hitting uh, that they, they're going to need to win. But these teams have the money to go out there and get themselves in the playoffs and give, and give themselves a chance. And I, I just don't think these other teams have a, ch a fair chance unless something happens at the top level of Major League Baseball to change that. Mark, I want to talk about a very, very hot pitcher right now. For the Cleveland Indians. The Indians right now are leading the Red Sox 7-1. Lonnie Chisenhall is at it on solo homer. 
to give the Indians their seventh run. But I want to talk about Danny Salazar, who started tonight's game. Listen to these stats over his last seven starts. That includes tonight. He's got a 1.48 ERA. That's in 48 and two-thirds innings pitched. He's given up only eight earned runs. He's given up 24 hits. He struck out 47 during that time, and his whip is 0.82. This guy is really dealing the ball. I saw him pitch against the Reds last year on TV, and actually, I think the Reds beat him, <laughs> actually. He was having some control problems, but his stuff was electric. I mean, he, he just had an unbelievable breaking ball, uh, had a great fastball, and it, it really was a, a an issue of him just controlling his stuff. He, he couldn't control it. Great stuff, but it, it appears that the light has gone on with him, and uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. I've always liked his arm, and... Uh, even Trevor Bauer, the last time I saw him pitch, he looked pretty strong to me. I don't know what he's done over the year, but uh, it looked like he's calmed down a little bit. And, uh, you know, that's why your pitching staff's so damn good. You know, and here you wanted to know about the Dodgers. They're leading the division by two and a half games over the Giants. You know, and everybody thought the Giants were dead after they were swept by the Cubs about a week and a half ago. They've won four straight, Mark, and they're still just two and a half games behind the Dodgers in first place. The surprising team, though, a lot of people would say the Mets are the surprising team. I think the surprising team is Washington. Just how much into the dumper they have gone. They have lost six in a row. They've, won, uh, they've lost eight of their last ten, and they're four and a half games behind the Mets in the, the Eastern Division. Yeah, that's, that is really an amazing thing. Uh, you look at that team and the pitching staff they have, and you and I have said this for three years. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. When they had a chance to win that World Series and put Strasburg on that roster, you know, at the time, you and I both said, you know, this happens only, this could happen only one time, guys. You, you, yep. you better, you better go try and win it. And it's been so true that they never recovered from the decision they made to not put Strasburg in that on that roster. Mark, very quickly before we wrap things up for tonight's show, John Farrell, the Boston Red Sox manager, you know, it, it's strange how things happen and for what reasons they happen, but all he did was reach for an equipment bag in New York two weeks ago, and when he did it, he lifted up that equipment bag. He suffered a hernia, which led to a minor routine procedure in Detroit a few days later, and that led to him being diagnosed with stage 1 lymphoma and he has had to step down as the Red Sox manager taking a leave of absence to undergo chemotherapy for that lymphoma we're going to have to wish him well Mark absolutely and and you know uh it, it's amazing how at that not have occurred and that thing lingered in there for the next year or so where he would be uh 12 to 24 months from now if he had not discovered it when he did so best of luck to him absolutely and the and the thing is is that the Indians are in Boston for the beginning of this week, and Terry Francona, who is Farrell's best friend, is going to accompany Farrell to his first chemotherapy session tomorrow as he battles that. So, you know, things happen for a reason, and obviously the Indians being in Boston, that's a good thing for John Farrell and Terry Francona. Francona said tonight before the game, he said, I don't know if I can help him, but at least I'll be there for him. Mark, what do the Reds have going on this week? They've got tonight off. Yeah, they got Kansas City coming in tomorrow, and then they have uh, San Diego and the Dodgers coming in on a 10-game home stand. And they also play one game against Detroit, a makeup game. So, you know, a chance to – I made my prediction last week. They'd go 2-8, and eight, and they beat me. They went 3-7. and seven. On this 10-game home stand, I would, I would say the Reds are going to go 5-5. Five and five. Let's, see, let's see how accurate that is. Well, and the Indians, they've got Boston tonight. They've got them again tomorrow night and Wednesday, and then they go to New York for a four-game set. The Saturday and Sunday games are in the afternoon. Mark, that's going to do it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, David. See you next week. Take care. All right, that'll do it for tonight's Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Thanks for joining us here this evening, everyone. Don't forget, coming up this Thursday night at 7 o'clock, the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. I'll be talking about everything that's happening in the world of sports. And on August 28th, we will be bringing you high school football action, so be sure to join us then. That's going to do it. Join us again next Monday night for another Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. For Mark Donahue, I'm Dave Mitchell. 
Good night, everybody. His kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. And Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born. Marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially with.